0: 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 9, read down through the end of the chapter, and I'll read out the New King James Version, as is my custom, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, God's Word declares, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know? That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Just a quick reminder out of Jude of where we are going and what we are studying. In Jude, verse 5, it says, but I want to remind you though you once knew this. And he gives a series of three illustrations that the people he is writing to had knowledge of, whether Jude had taught them himself or whether he just made the assumption built upon the scriptures they had or whether it was commonly taught in some kind of a doctoral format. They certainly were expected to have known about these three examples, but he takes this opportunity to remind them. And we realize that most every Sunday, in most every sermon, uh, most of my energy and effort is similar. We're reminding each other. of What we really already know is in the scriptures, occasionally I'm sure, uh, hopefully as we look into more and more of scriptures, we are uh, discovering things as well. Uh, But by and large, most of what we are doing is reminding. And we took a time to be reminded of what happened to Israel when they came out of Egypt, that they were destroyed because they did not believe. We're reminded of what happened to the angels who rebelled. And are today reserved in everlasting chains in our darkness for the judgment of the great day. And last week, and now we're finishing up this week, we are being reminded of what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. And last week we took some time to really investigate the idea that Sodom and Gomorrah did have a light. They did have access to the knowledge of God. They did have the testimony of godly men like Abraham. Lot, Melchizedek, and two visitors. There were angels themselves. And so we have a responsibility that we either respond to God by full faith believing, or we face judgment. Israel saw what God did to the Egyptians. He saw They saw and walked on dry ground crossing the Red Sea. They were drinking water from a split rock in Horeb, and yet they did not believe to the point of being obedient. They rebelled as well. The angels served and saw the glory of God and yet rebelled. And so we have a responsibility that if we know these things about God's word, why do we keep reminding each other about these kinds of events because some of these, like the three examples here, are warnings. They are warnings for us to stay faithful, to not surrender, to not give in to the evil one, to the world or to our own flesh, but that rather we recognize that God is always faithful and that we ought always to believe, never to falter, uh, when it comes to God's revelation of himself to us. That ultimately we can't speak with our mouth, that we believe something and live our lives completely different and fool God. If they do not match up with one another, if your life doesn't match up with your speech, we call that hypocrisy or acting, God is not fooled. And what He is attentive to is not your religious observances and the communications that come out of your mouth on occasions, although um, that certainly has to be there. And it should be there if your heart is right with God. But he is looking at a life that speaks in every facet that they believe in God, to the point of obedience. And so Israel disobeyed God. They couldn't wait for 40 days for God to finish talking with Moses The angels saw that men had something that they didn't have and they saw and wanted it more than they wanted to be obedient and faithful to God. And for Sodom and Gomorrah, we are moving into that realm of what we would consider the world or the lost. And yet we know that they have a testimony that springs from creation itself, Romans 1 tells us, and and extends into all that the manifest attributes of God that can be clearly seen, and yet they reject them. They also have the testimony of those that witness of Christ to them. And yet, what is it that prevents them from turning to Christ? And the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, it is their unrighteousness. And we're going to look specifically at that this morning, um, because our world has horribly distorted what it means to be moral to the point that the word doesn't mean anything anymore. And this, while it is disturbing to us, does not call us to simply turn our back on such individuals or even on a society given over to it, but rather that we recognize that as long as it is day, that there is still time For such were some of us. Before we look at that in 1 Corinthians, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for a reminder, a time to take aside and look into scriptures that we are largely familiar with probably, but um, to bring them fresh into the forefront of our thinking and to consider our ways as we look at them. To then look up from the pages of your word and to look around us and Yes, be vexed in our soul, but also to be challenged. We are called to be radically different, and that we have been empowered to be radically different. And for this, we thank you. While the one who is in the world, the evil one, is great in power, you are greater and that you are in us. and We pray your spirit might have liberty to work mightily amongst us as a body of saints, but also within us as our Lord and our Savior. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever I come to the subject of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, I have one phrase that always comes to my mind that I watched and heard. And it was, I wasn't in the church service, but it was one that was on, that was broadcast. And that was long before the internet. This was when I was just a kid, and we didn't even have the internet. Can you believe that? And it was a woman preacher. Yes, they had those back then, too. Nothing's new under the sun. Standing up in a pulpit in a full church and declaring, I'm going to tell you everything Jesus said against homosexuality. And she stood there silent. And soon the whole church, the longer she stood silent, burst into applause. So yes, it's been around a while, um, thousands of years from what I can tell. And yes, it has penetrated the people of God, or the claimed people of God. They want to redefine morality on such a degree we will take things that God point-blank declared that this is heinous in his sight and declare it okay, good, and in fact, right. And to do otherwise would be against nature. Isn't that incredible? Just think about that for a few moments. A very unnatural act. They have taken and said, no, for us not to to exercise this would be unnatural because this is in our genes. They have taken an unnatural act and made it natural. They have taken good and called it evil and taken evil and called it good. And the terminology that is used in Romans is that this is the unnatural use when we talk about homosexual sin. This is the unnatural use of intimacy. And yet, now we are being told, oh no, this is in my nature. This is how I was. I was born this way. And now we've gone even farther and said, yeah, I was born this way and I have these organs, but I was really born in a man's body, but I'm really a woman. And that's natural? Nothing natural in that, let alone what is moral. And pure and right and godly. And so I just want you to understand that we are not engaged in a moral warfare that is new. Even on an ecclesiastical level, on a church level, is it new? Um, In fact, when I was taking my pastoral counseling class, Um, that was my assignment. Because we were all given um, assignments, and so we were all counselees and counsellors. So each one of us drew out of a hat, and we had to have this problem we were going to go speak to our pastor about. Each one of us also drew the name of someone else who we were going to counsel. And the guy's name that I picked, the problem he had was he had... Homosexual thoughts. It was that much on the radar back then. That was the 80s. 1980s. Not 18, I'm not that old. 1980s, it was well on the radar. Because it's all the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is nothing new. So all we're doing is reminding you We are taking the time to remind you that God cares about the moral condition and attitude and actions of men. He not only looks upon the church and Christians in your moral condition, but he considers the world as well. He visits them. This is something God told Israel repeatedly. both to Moses and the period of Moses, period of Joshua, um, and the judges, is I brought you here to get rid of the Canaanites because I saw how heinous their sin was, and I wanted to eradicate it by eradicating them. And here you are adopting the very sins that moved me to displace the Canaanites, and you're bringing it in among your own people. And so God has visited the earth. Before the flood, what does God say? He went down and, walked and just looked at what men were up to. And what does it say? He says he was sorry that he had made men. He's sorry he even made you. So yes, he visits the ungodly to consider their life, their patterns. And it is no surprise that God is considering the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and evaluating it and determining, well, when's enough is enough. Even way back with the sin of Cain, there is another witness against men. In that act of violence, the witness was the earth itself. That the earth cries out to God when blood is spilled upon it. When the blood of innocent men is spilled upon it. That the earth itself cries out. That creation, the Bible says in Romans, the creation groans before the Lord. Creation itself, the created order itself groans to God about our sin. so yes, God is alert and he is aware and he um, is considering it and he does weigh that out. How far? How long? And there is a time because we've seen it so many times consistently throughout God's word and in history that God says that's enough. That's enough. So when an Amorite, or I'm sorry, a Syrian Syrian king stands at the walls of Jerusalem, his representative, stands at the walls of Jerusalem says, you have no business believing your God. He is powerless against us. Our gods have overrun all the gods. Don't listen to Hezekiah. He's a fool. He's going to tell you your God will deliver you, but his God isn't going to deliver you. And God says, oh, You're going to say that out loud in front of my temple? (laughs) They're gone. See, God has a limit. His toleration is not eternal. Yes, he knows we are made out of dirt. He knows that we are of flesh, that we are weak. But he also knows that there must be a limit. And this is what we are being taught here. Not only are we warned, don't trust in religious history for your redemption. <laughs> Dave reminded me from last week that you didn't really say that that was still required. You just don't trust in it. You, you have it, but that's not where it begins and ends. That's where it begins, not where it ends. We don't trust in just I had this thing with God back then. The angels had that and fell. We are made righteous by God and we are called to work out that righteousness. And So First Corinthians is what our text we're going to use. We studied we're going to be back in Genesis to look at Sodom and Gomorrah here but I want to begin in First Corinthians 6 where we have read in because Paul makes a point and to, in his list of what kind of unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And again, the way Paul reminds us is a little more um, in your face than the way Jude wants to say it. Should we say that? Jude says, I just want to remind you, which is a very pleasant thing to say. Paul says, don't you already know this? And he says it over and over again, doesn't he? Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? I mean, what, four times in this one passage, says, don't you know? I mean, it's kind of more my style than, let me remind you uh, of something you already know. Uh, th- this is more my, my, my way. All right, so don't you know this? Come on, people. Don't you know that the kingdom of heaven is for the righteous? And so if you are, and this isn't that you've ever done any of this, this is really just a list of, if this is your practice, if this is your lifestyle, if this is who you are, if this is what defines you, if this is what you are into, do not consider yourself to be an an, heir of the kingdom of God. It says, neither fornicators, adulterers, uh, idolaters, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. It's kind of interesting, you have two different words. You might say, well, aren't those the same things? Not quite in the Greek, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, none of those are going to inherit the kingdom of God. I say, oh man. And our response maybe to Paul here is, yeah, I guess I did know that. Or I should have known that. Much like the disciples who come to Jesus says, well, who then can be saved? If the rich can't inherit the kingdom of God, who can be saved? because they the only ones that have the time to read the Bible. In their minds, they were the affluent and the religious. And Paul lists these off and says, don't you know this? You already know this. The wicked cannot inherit righteous kingdom. It can't work. And so he lists off both, all of these are moral, immoral immoral lists, of sins. It's not intended to be uh, complete. It's not a full list. It is a sampling list uh, in, in multiple areas of life that are all wickedness before God. So says, you think you're going to inherit a kingdom of righteousness with that being who you are? With you walking around and strutting around really and saying, this is how I got made. This is my... I can't help it. You see, your whole generation is, your whole generation, like I'm not part of that. Um, in my day, when I was young, we would walk around, and here's the big thing, T-shirts were made of it, and that is, the devil made me do it. You guys remember that? The devil made me do it? Big thing all across the country, devil made me do it, devil made me do it, it was funny, ha ha, here's Now it's your genes make you do it. I don't know if they have any t-shirts to say that. I really don't. But that's pretty, basically the argument. Your genes make you do it. I'm not talking about your britches. I'm talking about your genetic material. Okay? I was made that way. Paul seems to think otherwise. He says, these are your choices. Because the very next verse says, such were some of you. You used to be thieves. You used to be covetous. You used to be drunks. You used to be extortioners. You used to be idolaters, fornicators, adulterers, and homosexuals. Such were some of you Corinthians. Do not tell me that these are not sins of choice. For this is the lie that the evil one wants to convince us that they're cannot be victory over sin. But such were some of you. Some of the Corinthians had practiced these things. And of course, we know that the Church of Corinth was a carnal church. They are still practicing some immoral things in the church. But they took care of that. By 2 Corinthians, that's resolved. I mean, they took a stand, praise God. And they were going to put the bulwark there and you're not bringing that stuff into here. You're not, we're not allowing that kind of activity anymore. Because we have 1 Corinthians, we have that book from Paul and he tells lays it out, how we ought to be doing things. So we come to this and he says this is what you were, past tense, but you were washed. Wonderful term. When we come back from the mountains camping, um, one of the first things I notice is as soon as the truck and trailer are unloaded and everything's in, that they, there starts this long line. It's not really a long line at our house, but I'm taking a shower. I don't know why everyone has to tell me that, but I'm gonna go take a shower, but they all do. And boom, 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 they're all jumping in the shower. Why? Because It's really hard to wash when you're camping out of a bucket, and you get dirty. And reasonable people, sane people recognize, I want to get this off of me. When Christ comes into your life, you recognize this is stuff from the world I want out of my life. I want to get this stuff off of me. I feel dirty, grimy. I don't want to go to bed like this. I've already slept a night or two like this, I don't want to do another one in a bag nonetheless. Um, Miles says, you are washed of all that. Why would you want to go back into that? And I noticed that once they shower, they don't want to come over and help clean the church, they don't want to go milk my goat, they don't want to pull weeds, they don't want to do any of that. Once they've taken their shower, they just want to sit around and drink lemonade and Read or something. Here you, no, no, just, they don't want to get dirty again. Brethren, we have been washed from all that filth. Why do we want to get dirty again? Now, frankly, sometimes you got to go out among it. And we're going to talk about that here very briefly here because the Bible does. So we, we're not going to isolate ourselves from the world, and that's not what God calls us to, but we isolate ourselves from worldliness, that we're not going to bring it into our life. We've been washed. It says you were justified, in the you were sanctified you, in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. These things renewed you. You have been cleansed of all that. That was, was your life, and it should not now be your life. If that defines you then, then Christ needs to define you now. I am like Christ. And so he goes on, don't you know, and he again goes through this, <laughs> don't you know your bodies? And so this is really about your body. When we come to the sin of more this is about handling of your physical body. And again, I've said this multiple times, I'm going to say it again, I'm convinced by my conversations with Christians that most of your wanters uh, would like to be really, really Christ-like, that you don't want sin in your life, and that you want to live for God. And then something gets in your way, and Paul agrees with that It says, yeah, my flesh. And it's a little holy war going on between me and my flesh. So yes, you have this dead thing you're dragging around with you, Um, in addition to the world, in addition to the evil one and the temptations and fiery darts he throws at you. Um, You have this body. And so Paul's going to talk about the body. It it is not fundamentally evil, but it has its weaknesses, and God declares that. You are just made out of dirt, and your body is weak. Having recognized that weakness, if we have a knowledge of it, don't you know that your body is fundamentally the weakest link in your walk with God? Generally speaking, how are you going to handle it? well, if I have a team and I have a weak spot, do I run away from it? Do I just ignore it? Do I just let it have its way? No. Any team knows that if you have a weak player, the first thing you do is make sure you have that position covered. Help is there. Because you know that the enemy is going to exploit what part of your team, the weak spot. So it's no wonder Satan is having a field day. Because we have tried to extradite ourselves from our bodies, and somehow, and, and the whole monk and and where we're going to punish the body, asceticism, and and we're going to, is not really the answer? Neither is worshiping the body the answer. The other extreme, where we just give it everything at once, but rather we take a biblical approach and recognize that these bodies are temporary buildings. They are little temples, and now I have to have a perception that I want it to stay clean for its resident. That it doesn't belong to me anymore. And so now I'm going to use this same body that, yes, can do these evil, immoral things easily and seems drawn to them. I'm going to change my attitude and position on that and recognize the ownership is the Lord and I want God to be pleased to use this body for his glory. And that is a lot broader than you think. You think, oh, that's such a narrow little life. i got to live like this, a little robot. No. Nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, the Bible says that once we receive Christ and are washed and sanctified and justified, that we are liberated. That our bodies are liberated to serve him. Not confined to serve him. What confines us is sin. You want proof of that? Let's go to Genesis. Let's see how confining Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was. We're in chapter 19, by the way, if you're wondering. I just said Genesis, I think. I didn't think I gave you a chapter. How confining is this sin that works in us, in our bodies? In Genesis 19... Verse 4, it says, now before they lay down, that is before the two visitors went to sleep that night in Lot's home, it says, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. They called to the Lot and said to him, are the men who came to you tonight. Bring them out to us and we know them carnally. Come out at night. Why? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and they know it. And they are driven to do that which they know shouldn't be done. They are violating their own conscience, they are prisoners of sin. It gets worse. Lot goes out to them, shuts the door behind them, says, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. He offers them his two daughters. He tries to reason with them, and their response in verse 9, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. You can't reason with them. Why? Because they are confined. They are trapped. Their bodies are committed to something that their heart and conscience knows is wrong. Hence, they do it at night when it's time. When they should be going to bed, they they, they are driven to go do this. They cannot be reasoned with even when being offered incredibly. We, We look at that offer of Lot and we go, how could he have done that? Um, because we don't really understand Eastern thought very much, um, and the influences that are there on Lot. But uh, we say, how could he even offer his daughters to them in that manner? And yet we find that they can't even receive that. They are confined to this. Sin is on their heart, in their mind, and they have to do it. They are bound in sin. The angels strike them with blindness. Blindness. They are so caught in their sin that that doesn't even get them to go away. Do you see what happens after they go blind? In um, verse eleven, says they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so they became weary trying to find the door. How? confined are you? How imprisoned are you to this sin? That even when you're blind, you don't think I should probably find out what's causing this. No, you're still saying where are those guys? We've got to get them. We're going to abuse them. And you can't see. And yet instead of thinking about your blindness, instead of thinking about the offer of law, instead of thinking about the fact that why are we out here in the dark doing this? Why didn't we do it during the day? And the violation of your own conscience, they can't even conceive of those things because their heart is imprisoned by the flesh given over to sin. So no, what we are asking, inviting you about being washed, being sanctified, being justified by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit is not confining you to this strict moral code. We are liberating you from the prison of sin. And now you can do incredible things with a completely clear conscience. Um, you can have intimacy with your wife um, as frequently as you want. And in fact, I'm pretty sure Paul says that you shouldn't go more than three or four days without it. Did he say that? Yes. Yes. Or back in his day, wives too, because there's still plural marriages going on. You ever wonder that God didn't have a problem with David having more than one wife? Moses had more than one wife? Didn't have a problem with that. But you have it with someone who's not your wife, he's got a problem. You have it with a neighbor's wife, taking a bath down there, then I have a problem with you. You're free. You think that's confining? Oh, no, it's not confining. From all the research and studies and stuff I've heard or seen, um, most people can't keep up with that kind of pace of intimacy. Two to three days, I think, maybe it says two to three days there, but only for fasting. That's the longest. That's pretty free. What about worship? Is worship confined to this building this hour? No. You get to worship. Because any act of obedience, including intimacy with your wife, is an act of worship. Can eating be worship? Yes. I think that's the example used use here in Corinthians, isn't it? Food for the stomach, stomach for food. Yeah, eat. Thank God for it and eat. But you don't have to be gluttonous about it. And you don't have to do injury to yourself by, by it. But just recognize God made food and he made the body to consume food and you have to have food. So when your daughter is a nutrition major and sitting there looking at you eat and say, Dad, do you know how bad that is for you? I go, but I thanked the Lord for this before I ate it, so I'm okay. And I ate lots of carrots, too, so covers it. You see, we have the concept, because the world wants us to think that living a moral life is confining, that it's narrow, that it's hard. And that is the evil one's lie. It's not hard. It's only hard when we give our flesh over to sin and its imprisoning power. It's not hard for me to eat. It's not hard for me to be intimate with my wife. It's not hard for me to um visit. It's not hard to work I mean work, I sweat and all that, but um I would hate to just sit around and do nothing all day. I love these guys that retire. they can't wait to retire, and then they oh, I gotta do something. <laughs> this is nuts. These things are all acts of worship. Not just singing and studying God's word on Sunday morning. Going out and earning a paycheck to take care of your family. That's worship. Because God commanded you to do that. He said, man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. and You should work enough to take care of your own and have an extra to share. That's a command of God. Get up and go do it. You're worshiping God. You're not living a confined life when you live a moral life. You're living a liberated life, free from guilt, free from looking over your shoulder of, of fear, not only of cops coming and pulling you over. Um, my fear of cops has really dropped lately, I noticed, about the last eight years or ten years or so. I, I'm just not afraid of them anymore. I don't know why. Used to make me real nervous. Now I'm like, oh, they're just my kids. No fear of getting caught. <gasps> you caught me. What was I doing? Reading. My Bible. <sighs> you caught me. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I don't live like that. What'd you catch you doing now? That's a free life. That's liberty. And so the moral condition of Sodom wasn't freedom. It was imprisonment. And God tried to show it to them by blinding them. Don't you see how limiting your sin has made you? This isn't natural. There's nothing natural here. The two words in the, the Greeks had developed a lot more. If, if you go into the Old Testament uh, later on in, uh, I want to say Leviticus, it talks about some of the things that are detestable before God, and in that list is when a man lies with a man as he would with a woman. Because there really wasn't a good Hebrew word to describe what was going on, so they just described what should be going on, but you did it with a man instead of a woman. By the time we get to the New Testament and that Greek, you got a lot of different words, <laughs> uh, and in fact, the difference between the word that is translated in your in Corinthians there as homosexual, and then the, the word sodomite is simply um, the same. You might say, well, that's the same act. No, it's the two two sides, both sides. That both the one who is allowing it and the one who is acting upon it are both guilty. And that's kind of an interesting thing. Leviticus, both sides are guilty, always guilty. And so whether it's the effeminate one or the dominant one um, isn't a matter. They're both immoral and offensive to God. And so Paul lists them both. And typically a sodomite is generally the male, but, um, well, they both have to be a male, don't they? Because it's a homosexual act. Um, but is the dominant, and the other one is effeminate. And, and Paul says both. These are offensive to God. Now, why do we remind ourselves about the <sighs> imprisonment of more, of immorality? Because not only is it an imprisonment today because you're violating your own conscience because you can't be reasoned with. You can't reason with that kind of, of flesh. Um, and it is a blinding thing that drives you uh, to destroy your life. They'll do anything, and it doesn't matter what it costs them, and they end up costing them everything. Well, not only does it imprison you in this life, that kind of immorality, not only does it bind you up and, and, and violate who who you are, and and what you know. But it also, remember the purpose of Jude, It makes you the recipient of the judgment of God. Now ultimately that, of course, is in the day of judgment. Um, but I am not going to sit here and say that God's judgment is only for that day, because if that were the case, then Sodom and Gomorrah would still be cities on the earth, but they aren't. Because God says, "Uh uh-uh, that's enough. And in that town, those several towns, not just somewhere, but the region, God says, that's not going to happen anymore like that. So does God exercise that kind of justice in our day? And I would have to conclude, yes, he does. There's a physical cost a penalty and I've lost enough of my peers to AIDS and other diseases and effects and that is driven not by the fact that their parents wouldn't accept their homosexuality but because they knew it was wrong. And it so violated their conscience that they commit suicide. And the world would have you turn it upside down and say, well, that's our fault for not accepting them. But the, but the fact is, the suicide rate among homosexuals is so high because it violates themselves. And this Paul speaks of in Corinthians, doesn't he? All other sins are outside the body. But sexual sins are against your own body. And it is no one, I mean, we're not talking about fraction, this a little fraction higher of suicide rate. We're talking about double. Why? And they want to put the blame on preachers like me who call sin sin, who are here to say, please get out of that sin, get washed, be sanctified, be justified. Make this your past instead of your defining not only who you are today, but what's going to happen to you in the future. So yeah, I think AIDS is a just judgment of God uh, on the earth, in our age. And more have died from AIDS, trust me, than died in Sodom and Gomorrah that day. And for all the hearing we have about all the people that got it by being pricked by needles or things like drug use and things like that, or incidental contacts, um, that accounted for less than 1% of all AIDS victims. Less than 1% for all you hear about it. 99 plus percent were from homosexual acts by them or their partner. Just judgment. Do we need to remind you that God has a limit to how much he will tolerate? Ultimately, of course, that will come out in the day of judgment. And I want to close by just reminding you of one thing. That preacher lied to her congregation Christ did say something about Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't he? He said something about Sodom and Gomorrah to three towns in the north of the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida, Chorazim, and Capernaum. And this is what he said to those three little towns. Two of them, one of them for sure, a fishing village, but they're all right there kind of clustered together. He says, woe to you. For if the miracles and teachings that have been happened in you, happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. I want you to think about that for a little bit. Yeah, Jesus did mention it. He did mention Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did he mention about them? Is that they could have repented. Isn't that great? Jesus says, they would have repented. If they had seen or heard everything you've seen or heard, they would have repented long ago. They had a light, and they rejected that light, and God judged them for that. Um, But the fact is, is that we have many, many, many times the light they had. We have access to the scriptures, we have all this church history, we have all biblical history, we have Christ himself, we have the Holy Spirit, we have one another, and we have no excuse whatsoever. And that's what Jesus was saying to those three towns. Why are you so resistant? And by the way, many, not many, a good handful of his apostles came out of that trilogy of cities. And so, wasn't there weren't any believers? Is that as communities they weren't coming to Christ. They wouldn't accept Him. We have multiplied more opportunities of light than Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the woe that Jesus cast on the Chorazim, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, I think has multiplied even more so, maybe triple, on a nation like ours. Whoa, whoa, whoa. To you who have been given so much and have gone in such a place immorally, in such a place rebelliously, and in such a place of unbelief. Rightly does Jude remind us, don't you know where this ends? This ends in death. This ends in eternal separation from God. Why would you let anyone lead you away from the righteousness of God? Thinking that grace lets you sin as much as you want. Shame on such an individual. He's going to talk about the individuals later on in Jude. But these three examples, don't fall to unbelief, don't fall to rebellion, and don't fall to immorality. For all of these, God is clearly judged. And any preacher or teacher or influence in your life that encourages any one of those three you need to run away from. If they're getting you unbelief, rebellion, immorality. Woe, woe, woe. So yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah could have repented, which means that there is a way out. There's a way out of that sin, and every sin. There is an escape and that is in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the spirit within us that Paul lists here. Don't you know that your bodies can be the temple and are the temple, if you're a believer, are the temple of the Holy Spirit and you, in you and you, you're not your own. You're bought the price of or glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Once we have a right view of the flesh and a right view of what a moral life is, that it is free and not confined Because the world calls good evil and evil good. So the world says moral life is confined, immoral life is free. What a lie. A moral life isn't confining, it is the freest experience on earth. Never looking over your shoulder, never having your conscience violated, never having the misery of waking up in the morning and saying, what have I done? Never being blinded. That kind of living, confident living in righteousness is liberating. And if you've never had it, I invite you to have it today by being washed, being sanctified, being justified by Jesus Christ and his spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have conquered sin and death for all. For all man, for all time. And that even these that we have seen these sins moved you to take extraordinary action against men it can be we can be delivered from Lord we thank you for such a hope for such an offer for such a salvation but Lord we also recognize that should we reject that offer that there is nothing left but sure Severe judgment. And Lord, for those of us who are your children, who have received you as Savior, have committed our lives to serving you, to be followers of your name, Lord, please remind us, as Jude does, as your word does, and that we might remind one another to press on to love, to good deeds, to righteousness, to obedience, to a moral life that is liberating and free. By pleasing you, we can breathe easier in these days. Lord, we know that that requires your spirit to have liberty. And we pray that we might be found walking in your spirit, that we might not resist him, that we might not quench him, but that we might engage him with all that we are. To your honor, praise, and glory. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.